interesting experience at the beginning of a, a talk, the mind just goes blank. <laughs> Deserted. <clears throat> Something will come. <laughs> the hill and uh, the end is in sight believe it or not uh, quite uh, talking to someone earlier saying it's, it's quite strange because some at some point in the retreat it feels like the end is never in sight it feels a, a long way away and then suddenly uh, it shifts and it's like oh a couple more days and it uh, will dissolve. Uh, and for some people, as a, I think someone leaving tomorrow, and perhaps people beginning to already, the mind moving towards what's going to meet us, perhaps when we leave the retreat. But still, we've We've got a few more days to perhaps hold at bay a bit uh, our everyday life and to continue with this space uh, reflecting on the Dharma together. As I said this morning, a very precious time. And it's interesting how the mind in a habitual way can just uh, erode that sense of the preciousness of the moments that we have. Oh, just another day, another day at Guy House. And, uh, another day at Kitty Sire and Tanisra. So I've, uh, I've been bringing my mind to contemplate the, that uh, what comes in a day will never arise again. It has a, a certain uniqueness about it. And people have been, uh, some of the things people have said in our small group discussions, valuing the, the possibility of being present for their lives. It's a very simple thing of just being able to be here <coughs> to receive our being more fully, our experience more fully uh, instead of reacting so much or being so driven by some of our ambitions and our projects or being uh, shut down by our resistance and our aversion to just try and arrive enough fully in the moments of our life to receive what is. It's quite um, quite wonderful to have the opportunity to really explore that more fully as we've been doing. Today we've been 
contemplating, highlighting more this notion of the, the third noble truth, the letting go, following on from Kitisara's talk last night, exploring what is it like when we, we put down or we don't uh, grasp so much, what is the experience like when we contemplate more spaciousness rather than the spaciousness of mind rather than focusing so much on the content or the storyline. Some people have been even noticing gaps in in thinking. (laughs) Before it just seems like there's just continual thought, there's no no gaps at all. Or using thought in a very deliberate way, thinking more deliberately to notice the beginning, the arising and the passing of uh, a mental construct. And looking at the ending today, we've been particularly noticing the ending as well. The ending of a, a thought, of a, of a sound, of sensation or feeling, and to notice what's there when there is the ending, what is what is uh, containing all that arises and passes in each moment, what is left. So this is a, a, a concentration more on niroda, or the cessation, or the non-grasping, the non-holding, leading to an opening or a realizing, an opening into this aspect of Nibbana. That which is ultimately peaceful, timeless, transcendent, accessible here and now, if we turn to it, if we notice, a question of noticing really. And the third noble truth, the Buddha didn't say you have to go out and get Nibbana, we have to go and dig down into a mine somewhere to to mine it. We have to go up into the sky to find it. Or maybe in 3,000 lifetimes, if we do enough prostrations and chants and purification practices, we might have a chance. <laughs> in fact, the whole notion of me uh, getting the special experience is an obstruction in, in, in and of itself. The sense of me getting somewhere, the I getting somewhere, the question more of just seeing that movement, even at a very subtle level of wanting to get something more than what's here. So when the, the Buddha said in the Third Noble Truth, Nibbana needs to be realized, needs to be open to, needs to be noticed, nirvana, the the underlying peacefulness of this universe, the innate peacefulness, peaceful aspect of our being. And we can liken it to spaciousness. As in space, when, in, usually when we, like if we sit in a room like this, we'll notice all the individuals, the different clothes people are wearing, if we like them or not, the way they look, whether they're young or old, the feeling we might get from individuals. Or we notice 
the house, Gaia House. This is a solid looking place. And uh, the structures of it, the rooms in it. Um, but we don't tend to notice the space within which it all happens. If it wasn't, if there wasn't any space, <laughs> it'd be pretty constricted. And this realization of bhana is, is is similar in a way. We notice a lot of the content of the mind, <clears throat> yeah, the the individual storylines that we have constant ongoing inner dialogue describing ourselves, describing and commenting on the world around us but we don't often notice the space within which it's happening or the innate awareness of the mind we notice the form and the feeling tone and the liking and the not liking and the struggling Uh, Kalo Rinpoche, a great Tibetan master, said it's, it's the mind itself that wanders in samsara. It's the mind that moves into different shapes, into these different uh, realms we were talking about the other, the other day, realms of happiness and pleasure and refinement and beauty and realms of pain and sorrow and despair loneliness, feelings of dullness and, and uh, neediness, and sorrow, joy, and moving through this, 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 the mind itself that, that, that is shifting and shaping itself through, through contact, through the senses, with things. With sounds, with sights, with feelings, with thoughts, with smells, with taste. This contact, feeling arises, pleasant, unpleasant, feeling arises. And then when feeling arises, there's a movement towards grasping or rejecting, tanha, craving, and aversion. And we find ourselves shaped by that which we're grasping at and that which we're pushing away from. This is a process of, of birth or identification, becoming someone that is, that is happy, becoming someone that is sad, becoming someone that's got projects and plans and ideas, becoming someone that feels hopeless, doesn't know what to do, becoming someone that's doubtful and scared, Becoming someone that feels confident. Becoming someone that's ill and depressed. Becoming someone that's full of life and vigour. And uh, this constant birth process of moving into, taking shape. It's what we call the, the flow of life, or, when or the experience of samsara, the turning, the, the experience of time of movement, of me moving through these, uh, these different uh, shapes and realms, 
feeling sensation through life until death. So this this is fueled by avijja, not seeing clearly, not really seeing, not really looking clearly. Who is this I? What is this process of birth and death happening moment by moment, grasping, becoming something only to find it shifting on us? So as it's said, the, the Kalarimpo show says that it's the mind that wanders in samsara and experiences dukkha there. At a certain point there's a, there's a message, there's something unsatisfactory in trying to the mind itself, trying to find, it's identifying, finding a self in the mortal changing world, trying to find ourselves in the changing mortal realm of samsara as an entity as a separate entity and the frustration of that because it's so it's so shifting and so changing so this experience of dukkha the mind that wanders in samsara and experiences dukkha there and through the contemplation that's why it's considered in the Buddhist teaching when there's, there's it's a very um spiritually mature moment when there's no longer just the blind reactivity to this experience of dukkha just trying to manipulate the conditions around us to satisfy us or other people in the material realm but to actually come face to face with the bare bones of this profound feeling of it's never satisfying enough it never really fills me up enough I'm never complete there's this feeling of dis-ease that just constantly keeps me moving and searching and looking and sort of fueled by tanha, by this craving for the next experience, for the, for the next thing so this, this movement uh, when it actually, when, we, when there's enough frustration, when there's enough dukkha then we, our relationship starts to change to that dukkha no longer do we, we project it out blame the world around us or, or someone else for that experience. No longer do we project it onto ourselves, turn ourselves into a failure because we, we feel dukkha or a martyr. Poor me, look how much I'm suffering. No one suffers as much as me. Or no longer do we just repress it, blindly repress it and try and uh, distract ourselves. But this turning to, is considered a very important moment to be able to turn to consciously this experience for the sake of understanding and beginning the journey the the leaving of the the palace beginning the journey to really find uh, a place of completion to really turn away from this endless wandering which is what a retreat's like isn't it? it contains us enough to stop us long enough to turn to allow the mind to to in a way have that sense of, of boundary allow the mind to begin to look in another way to notice in another way so the Kalarimpache goes on to say the mind then realizes nirvana begins to notice the ending by, by non-grasping through understanding 
rather than being moved through samsara by the forces of vicha, of not seeing clearly, there's the establishment of what's called vicha, or seeing, or clarity, or the Buddha, the awareness, the investigative, the wisdom, reflecting. When there's vicha in the mind, it's not samsara, it's just dharma. It's just the nature of things. It's no longer a, a sense of self. It's no longer me. It's me being... Yes, on one level, me being sad. But on a more profound level, it's just, this is sadness. This is happiness. This is the nature of the Dharma realm. It has its perfection, it has its beauty, it has its its own karmic lawfulness. It's the, 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 the old translation for the word Dharma is nature, the natural way of things. There, There is. Happiness, there is sadness, there is birth, there is death, there is sorrow, there is expectation, there is hope, there is despair. All of these are, are part of the Dharma realm, rather than so much something that we take as a self and then struggle over and hold on to and push away and enter into this ancient... Uh, wrestling match. So, this turning uh, to clear, beginning to establish, we've been doing on this retreat, setting the boundary within which to establish this feature, this seeing, this presence, this ability then to reflect more from a point of, of clarity. Even if there's not, if, even if there's confusion, being able to see this is confusion, rather than I'm confused and I've got to find an answer and I've got to work it out. It's a very different relationship, just to say, this is confusion. It's very freeing, it's very liberating. It doesn't mean to say it's necessarily the end of confusion, but at that point, there's a, there's a, there's a different relationship to it. It's a relationship based more on, on this, Kisara's reading from Ajahn Chah and writes, seeing or clear view or right understanding relationship based on wisdom rather than on reactivity so we've been working on, on these in these few days just these few days precious few days together working on establishing this notion of feature taking refuge in the ability to see clearly rather than being propelled by uh, false assumptions about the nature of, of the world that we live in Contemplating the characteristics, helping us to do that, change. So in, in the mind finally beginning to, to go into a different mudra of not trusting, not having to grasp, not having to push away, being able to realize and open to the underlying peaceful nature nature, you begin to get a sense of, of, of a refuge, of an abiding, a taste of, of the, the Buddha said, the taste of Nibbana is really the most profound happiness in the world. There's no sensory happiness that can compare with it, actually. It's like coming to base camp after travelling around here, there and all over the place. A sense of relief. <sighs> relief of just being able to put it down. But then, 
there's still the issue of of being in the world, isn't there? What 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 is so? When you look at the the Buddha's life, he's put on the night of his enlightenment, profound sense of peacefulness. All the struggle, all the work to see the the clarity, the seeing, realizing that actually the world wasn't a problem, it was just a relationship to it. It was the desire to try and push it away or to to get away from that which was painful or the identification. It was just through the clear seeing. This is Dharma. This is how it is. The relinquishment, allowing him to arise in a place where one always is. Simple realization. And there was a temptation for the Buddha to, I mean, they said that it was such a profound peacefulness that he was in a state of bliss for weeks. Just spent a whole week staring at the Bodhi tree with eyes unmoving. It's beautiful, I find that very beautiful, just to spend a week gazing with devotion at the Bodhi tree that had sheltered him. I mean, that, that's connected. <laughs> communion with the, the ancient Bodhi tree. And went, went on to contemplate the laws of cause and effect and mind. Imagine that. Enlightened mind, open, contemplating the cause to effects in this universal system. And there was something in him that just wanted to to go probably to the Himalayas, hang out in a cave, that's it, wow. And uh, very tempted to just check out. And he sort of thought about uh, the possibility of teaching and it seemed like quite a hassle actually, as it turned out to be. <laughs> And uh, it said that there was what, what actually prompted the Buddha to not just check out and go and live in the Himalayas was the movement of compassion. They say they depicted as the god Brahma Sahampati came down and Brahma Sahampati had been watching this whole amazing show going on, the struggle for enlightenment. And he probably thought, well, this is a moment to make some good karma. So he appeared before the Buddha and uh, pleaded with him, for those with a little dust in their eyes, please turn the wheel of the Dharma. Out of compassion. So whether it was just the way of talking about the compassionate mind, or there was a god called, a great deva, a great radiant deva called Brahma Sahampati that actually appeared before the Buddha, the issue really is that uh, when the Buddha contemplated the world, he realized, yes, there are those beings that can understand the Dharma. With a little dust in their eyes. He wasn't a missionary. He wasn't like, yippee, let me get out there and convert everyone. It is a very profound um, notion that actually the Dharma can only appear when there's the invitation, when there's the openness. And in a way, that applies in our in our own lives. Sometimes we we actually we block ourselves from really allowing the universe to appear, uh, allowing the Dharma to appear before us. 
in, in the ways that it can quite mysteriously and magically sometimes because there's something in us that blocks it. And so in the Buddha Dharma, you know, classically, it's never seen as something that you can actually convert anyone to or push onto anyone. You can only really communicate if there's an openness. So you can only really, uh, you can only manifest. Sort of conditions are there. So the Buddha went forth out of this notion of compassion for those suffering that can, through not hearing the Dharma, through not really contemplating it, will continue in this, this, this endless wheel of just turning around. So what, what, when, when we, um, in a way, in, in this retreat, we've been really looking at the, the wisdom aspect a lot, the insight, the vipassana. Um, we haven't really focused a lot on the compassionate, these two main streams of Buddhism and the balancing of them, the healing, the compassionate, uh, and the insightful, the wisdom. Or as the, the great saint Nisargadatta saying, I like very much of his, which is, wisdom says, I am nothing, while compassion says, I am everything. And between these two banks, the life uh, of a saint flows. So there's a sort of a a paradox, or there's a a seemingly opposite truth between the teachings of the Buddha, where he says, all things, as Kirisara was saying last night, are as dreams, are as bubbles, as a dewdrop. They're instantial, and yet, in the, the Metta Sutta, the Sutta on Loving Kindness, we should regard all beings as a mother does her only child in her better moments. <laughs> so this, this, uh, and it's, it's, it's a beautiful teaching because they both, in a way, they don't sit easily together, you know, like, well, if it's all, there's no one here anyway, who are we helping? <laughs> It's all just an illusion. And so sometimes they talk about these two levels of reality. They're both, they both have a reality to them. The conventional level and the transcendent level. So the, the, the heart, and I'm talking about the heart, the Pabhasa Jita, that we've been contemplating, opening to, when we, release from some of the constrictions of the mind, what is its natural expression in the world around us? And one is the, the, the natural expression when the papasa, when it's the heart open and clear, comes into contact with the world. One of the resonances, responses is this compassion. Being able, compassion is based really on being able to feel with, feel with the suffering of life around. So at first, our motivation in the meditation can be very much um, based on a sense of, um, often we can come to meditation just to become a little more peaceful. Just wanting to have a bit more of a calm or peaceful life, um, a bit more pleasurable. 
or maybe to, to become more successful. There is a certain power with meditation. And, and, uh, some of the, if one looks in some of the magazines advertising various spiritual workshops, they're, they're very open about it, you know, just to, to get what one desires, to fulfill one's desires, and to um, become more powerful, or whatever. Motivations like that, you can pick up spiritual tools to use for that purpose. And it, and it is true in some ways, as we become clearer in life, then uh, there are some very good things that come out of that, very, that can be very satisfying for us personally. And perhaps our motivation can begin to deepen. We might start off wanting to get a bit peaceful, but as we start to realize that actually to, to really become peaceful, there's a, there's a need to work with those areas in our being, those areas in our life that we would normally move away from, the suffering, or what we might call the shadow, or the, the, the anger that we might feel, or the, the fear that we might have. And this, this allows us to have a, a different level of commitment. So we, use, we start to use the meditation in a different way, a spiritual life in a different way. So where we're prepared to not just try and get a bit peaceful, a bit happy, but we're prepared to also open to that which is uncomfortable. And you know, this, this in a way is uh, based on the on the movement of of still a sense of me wanting to get something out of this, really, which is fair enough. I think that is a very valid valid motivation. We we, we all want to get something out of this for ourselves. Um, we want to become more peaceful, more clear, less frightened, more uh, more courageous, whatever, free from suffering. And that was the very profound motivation. I want I want to be free from suffering. And then perhaps if we look a bit deeper, this even notion of I, who is it that wants to become free from suffering? And we realise actually this, this notion of I is this entity, this solid entity is is a bit is a bit um, um, questionable. We start to question it. Who is this I? We've seen this, this sense of I is an interdependent process, ultimately. So we can't really box it up. It's connected. It's an interdependent process connected to the whole of life. And this is when that opens up, we we can start to uh, feel sometimes more profoundly in relationship, ourselves in relationship to the whole, and we can feel we can feel not only the suffering we experience, but the suffering in the world around us. And then this, the compassion deepens to not not only um, what am I getting out of this, but how can I use my life to heal, or to help, or to support compassionately those that I'm connected with, or this planet, or this earth, or other beings. So this this motivation is called the, the Bodhisattva, or the Bodhicitta. Um, 
where we're not we're no longer looking at other beings in terms of how we can compete with them or how we can um, get one over on them or what they what they can give to us or what we can get out of them um, and more and more not even necessarily having to judge being willing to to suffer with, being willing to see how can one benefit for the welfare of another, is the bodhisattva. But it's also really connected with this more this profound contemplation. And ultimately, there isn't a separate individual. It appears like that. Ultimately, there isn't anyone going anywhere actually. So these these two balance each other, support each other. And uh, the wisdom, the being able to dissolve into Nibbana all things that appear to be separate through non-grasping is balanced with the motivation in our daily life, a motivation of, of not just living for ourselves, but seeing how we can use our resources, our energy, our talents, our skills for the welfare of the whole and to bring about transformation of karma rather than just a blind perpetuation of suffering. So in the next uh, few days we'll start to look at this a bit more carefully, this uh, translation of the the wisdom, the insight, the meditative practices into our everyday life, how to integrate some of the things we've been doing, how to work more creatively, consciously, transforming karmic momentum that we're in contact with, informed by our wisdom not to be frightened to be engaged with life, realising that it's a profound area to integrate our spiritual practice. It's uh, bringing all aspects of our life into awareness, all those parts that we push out to the edges, where we go unconscious or we feel they're unspiritual. To transform um, the grasping mind, into skillful holding, being with. So people sometimes ask about being in marriage or being with children. If we have this idea of non-attachment, non-grasping, then uh, then we feel we should we can never be in life, we can never be in relationship because it's all attachment, it's all a part of suffering, it's all burning, it's all samsara. <laughs> a big dung heap <laughs> and yes that is a useful reflection to have that sense yes <laughs> it's useful reflection sometimes to go it is burning it's to feel the heat when we've grasped to be able to let go but that isn't that isn't the end of the journey that's like going up the hill seeing from the top of the mountain it's a beautiful view it's, the air is clear up here but we can't stay up there, we have to come back down to the marketplace, we have to pick up again. 
And so rather than blind, ignorant grasping at life, we can transform that energy into skillful holding, compassionately holding. And when there's not compassion, there's pettiness, or there's lack of forgiveness, there's judgment, then that's, that's what we can work with, we can bring our inquiry to. That's good, we can notice that. It, it can all, it can, it, it's all stuff that we can transform, that we can creatively work with. To have a child, to hold a child as they're growing up, takes uh, huge qualities, qualities that we've been developing. Patience, mindfulness, consideration, sensitivity. Compassion that's not always just compassion that can be quite strong sometimes. Firm. And to turn aversion, that, that ancient tendency to push away what we don't like, to be able to contain. You don't like my anger, don't like my fear. I don't want this restlessness. To be able to transform that into patient containment and uh, realizing that the very things that we don't we're pushing away or we don't like are actually got enormous teachings in them for us, enormous amounts of wisdom. So the last thing that Kellerin uh, Fisher says the mind, the mind that wanders in samsara, and the mind that tastes suffering there, and the mind that then turns to realize nibbana. And then that same mind works creatively for the welfare of the whole. This is the path. Not just uh, stopping on the mountain top or stopping at letting go, but being willing to engage to work creatively for the welfare of the whole, being informed by our insight, by our wisdom, by our ability, flexibility in letting go, developing agility in how to creatively respond to the situation we find ourselves in. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.